This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. So, Diana, it's launch day. Yay! (laughs) I'm psyched. How does it feel? It feels amazing. This is like the funnest launch day ever. I don't know. I think maybe it's like because of the pandemic, you know? Tell me what, tell me what's led up to launch day. What have you been doing? Um, I've been doing uh, 60 book clubs in 60 days. Uh, we're doing uh, this deal where it's all virtual book clubs and I drop in on people and, um, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> I just uh, appear and scare everyone for 20 minutes and then um, I take off again. So that's what we're doing. It's like a brave new world for uh, book clubs. So So these are things that were set up for you already, right? Um, well, what we did was the publisher, Norton, they created this page and they they put it out um, and had you know had everybody advertise it on social media and stuff and it just said, if you're in a book club and you're interested, sign up here. And, um, and they give people like um, bookmarks and I have a recipe that's in there. Um, I devised a recipe specifically for the book clubs, Blood Orange Baklava. And um, uh, oh, there's a reader group guide. So there's questions and stuff. Oh, and classes can do it too. So people who are um, teaching the book have also signed up for having me drop in on them. And it's been awesome. I. I can't get over. I was I was telling them you're not going to get ten book clubs, and they were like, instantly it just like filled up. So so it's not just launch day. It's like launch the next six months. Yeah, it's going to happen. This is <laughs> Diana Abu Jabber. You're going to be hearing about her yeah. from here until the end of the year and beyond. Right, the end of time. Yes, <laughs> because the book that you wrote, Fencing with the King, is brilliant. It's real. You know that I loved it. And I read it a while ago, and it stays with me even now. Oh, thank you, Mitchell. That means so much to me. I'm, so I'm tell honored. me how this is different than your other books. 
Well, um, there's certain threads that probably continue, will be familiar to some readers. Um, you know, the search for identity, the, um, the Middle East and the idea of immigration. But this book, instead of being set in the United States, it's completely set in the Middle East. And that was a really fun thing to do. I decided I wanted to do a deep dive on Jordan. And it's kind of looking at the idea of who the true Jordanian is, because that was such an issue when I was growing up in my family, you know, so-and-so, oh, they're not a new, they're not a true Jordanian. They're a newcomer. So for those who don't know, you are Jordanian American. Yes. Yes. So talk a little bit about the true Jordanian and and how that played out (laughs) in your family. Well, The true Jordanian in my father's family was someone who had been in the region like before Jordan existed. So it's kind of ironic. You know, Jordan's a pretty young country, really. It hasn't been around that long, Um, kind of since the turn of the century when um, the West, the superpowers of the West, England, France, United States, carved it up. And designated this area British mandate they called it Jordan and so um, and they even brought in a a king and they set up a monarchy and it became uh, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan so my father's family was in the region for generations and generations but really what they are is Bedouins and that's who is often considered the backbone of Jordan. These nomadic people, they're, they're tribal people who um, herd, they, they do move in caravans and they go from marketplace to marketplace and from one designation to another. And it's a very simple, traditional way of life. And that's who they considered the true Jordanian. And was your dad a true Jordanian? <laughs> well, dad was an interesting case in a lot of ways. My father's family is Christian, but we don't know how far back that Christianity goes. We don't know how recently they may or may not have converted. Um, dad converted to Islam. When he was in the Air Force, he was converted because he felt drawn to the strictures of Islam. He liked that it told you what to do. Um, He really enjoyed a regulated and highly ruled life. And so um, he became a Muslim. And in his family, his father was Bedouin, but his mother was actually from Bethlehem. And so, and she was Christian. So there was a lot of mix and match kind of things that were going on in his life. And the Palestinians are not considered true Jordanians. They're considered newcomers. Um, There's a lot of layers in Jordan. There's a lot of um, jostling for position and place. And um, my grandma, even though she was Oh, highly educated. She was very intelligent and had traveled and um, was well-read and well-spoken. She was considered much lesser because, you know, she was 
in exile. She had no land. She was dispossessed. Um, she was dependent on my grandfather and his family who took them in. They came on the Hejazi rail railroad, the one that's in Lawrence of Arabia. Um, they were actually boarded on the railroad by bandits and they had to leave the railroad and walk to my grandfather's house on foot when she was 14 years old. Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite a story. So what's really interesting is you've written in so many different forms. I mean, you've written memoir, you've written yeah. novels, you've written thrillers, you've written a lot of different kinds of things. And you chose this highly nuanced uh, story about your own life, really. Mm -hmm. And you, 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 you made it a novel, yeah. a very compelling novel. And, and, and because I know you, I know that some of it is rooted in your own family history. Yes. Some of it is not. So tell me about the difficulty you had in taking this nuanced story that you're so close to and distilling it into a novel that would captivate the reader like me, who knew nothing about Jordan. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm really concerned with entertaining. That's my first goal as a writer. Um, I know some people want to instruct, and I'm not that interested in, <laughs> in education. Um, I want to tell a really good story. So um, for me, a lot of it was about looking at my family's really good stories and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of escapades. My father's family is filled with mischievous and troublesome and cr criminal and um, poetic elements, you know, all kinds of ne'er-do-wells and, and also extremely accomplished people. And sort of trying to distill and understand which stories would work. Um, and that's always the the issue with writing novels is testing your stories, figuring out, will this hold up to the, the pages of a big, long novel? And there's a lot of stories that ended up getting cut out of this. I could imagine, because, because basically you had to make something that was propulsive. Yes. And you're so close to it, really. Oh, that's great. So tell me <laughs> how much your editor, I know you have a very close relationship with Elaine Mason, who is your editor, who's edited almost all your books, right? Yes, yes. And tell me how that relationship worked. She's amazing. She's really, um, I think, uh, a true original. Um, Elaine has said to me, she feels like the editor's job is to take all the, the creativity and the sparks and the wildness of the author's imagination and make it available to an audience. And I feel like that's what she does. Um, she is able to look at my crazy, crazy pages of stories and say, this story, out, this story, you know, expand on this. And she was really so um, instructive with this book because when I first wrote it, there were a lot of different perspectives. This was so much bigger of a book. <laughs> it was like twice as long as this. And she said, you have to pick you have to pick a center to this and you have to figure out who this novel belongs to. So that was great because that helped me unlock what was happening. So let's talk about Amani. Yeah. Who the novel sort of belongs to. Yes. So how much of you is in Amani? A, a fair amount. Um, Amani is maybe a younger me. 
you know, when I was in Jordan, I, I went to Jordan the same time Amani did, and I was the same age as her. Amani is 30, 32 years old. And she's a poet. And she's a poet, right, right. Um, and for me, going to Jordan was very much a time of absolute chaos. You know, I was looking for where I belonged. I was considering moving to Jordan. I was actually looking at buying an apartment there. Um, I was leaving my previous husband, my earlier regime. So I, uh, I was smashing everything up and basically recreating um, my life. And, and I wanted to use that for Amani. She also is kind of in this place of chaos. Now, she is her own person, very much so. Clearly. She is her own character. Like there's a story in there about she gets kind of smashed, she gets drunk, and she misbehaves at a faculty function and almost gets fired. And that did not happen to me. I was wondering about that. <laughs> that was not me. <laughs> that actually happened to one of my teachers, oh, my really? writing mentor. Wow who is very famous, whose name I won't say. But um, he did that. He came into our workshop, and he was drunk. And he told us all exactly what he thought of our writing, <laughs> unvarnished. And, uh, and I thought, well, this has to be in the novel. So I gave it to Amani. But She wore it well. Yeah, good. <laughs> so Fencing with the King, the yes. great title. And it really means something, because... It's really this is this is basically based on something your dad actually did, right? Yes, yes. So talk about that a little bit. Well, that was um, one of the starting points for the book. Um, I was in a party at one of my uncle's houses in Amman, and they were talking about oh, you know, they were gossiping about the brother who wasn't there, uh, which they did all the time. My dad had seven brothers. And so um, they were talking about how dad was the king's favorite fencing partner. And I said, wait, wait a second, what? <laughs> he was what? And um, I didn't know that dad even knew how to fence. I mean, this was all brand new to me. Um, and it was something that did form a catalyst for the book, the idea that when you immigrate to a new country, you leave behind a life that you've lived in so many ways. And the children who are born in your new country, whatever it is, they often don't know about that life that was lived. And you have to excavate it. You have to become a detective of a sort if you really want to get to know those things. Um, my dad was a storyteller and he didn't hide any of his past. It's just that for him, and I think for so many immigrants and refugees, that life begins in the new country and it keeps beginning each time you find a new place. I think what you did really so masterfully in this as well is you were able to be so empathetic to a girl, a woman, who had half of her life in the U.S. and another half in Jordan. So she was yeah. truly kind of like straddling two worlds. Yeah. And she was really conflicted as to which world she really wanted to be in. Right. And so many immigrant stories are not that. 
some of the immigrant stories are the whole family comes over mm-hmm. and that and then you know then they don't have to worry about the family that's still left yeah. but what you did is for me it was so so descriptive of what it might be like having a portion of you somewhere else oh that's great to hear i really i i'm so happy to hear you say that um because it was a story that i grew up feeling haunted by you know i have cousins my same age who were raised in jordan and they seem fundamentally jordanian to me arab and when i was in jordan i realized very quickly that i was american that all that confusion was really cleared up quickly. Um, but it made me realize how arbitrary in a way, how ephemeral identity can be and how it can turn on a dime. You know, perhaps what if I had been raised in Jordan? Would I be a completely different person? Um, and it's kind of humbling to realize that these things that we take for granted about ourselves, that we think are innately us, they may be complete whims of fate. So, so what does it make you think of when you are living through, as we all are right now, watching three million Ukrainians mm. Leave their homeland. Mm. I read today that it was 1.3 million children oh, are on the move out of Ukraine. Right. What what goes through your mind as mm. someone who kind of lived it in a in, in a who lived it so closely in their family? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, one thing I will say that I think people don't realize about. Um, this form of enforced immigration is that you never stop traveling. You know, you get to your new country and it's just the beginning, really, when you get to the new place. Um, For some people, literally, and I know that's going to be true for a lot of the Ukrainian refugees, um, but for others, they get to a new place and perhaps they try to make a new life there, but They don't tell you this when you leave your homeland. They don't tell you that you are now going to be split and that there's a rift in you. And it's in many ways, it's a beautiful thing because it gives you more of yourself. It gives you a bigger self, but it also gives you a half self. You get two half selves rather than one unified, easy to inhabit self. that can be really, really painful for people. And refugees carry with them the weight of that history. The, the, there is a true legacy of exile, and it is something that is real and continues through generations. And in your case, it continued to your generation. Yeah. When you were born here, yet you still felt the very same sense of dislocation. Absolutely. You do. It's those issues, those ways of, co- of coping with problems, of seeing the world, they get passed down from generation to generation. And, you know, it's like we were, I think we were talking about this when people say that they're second generation Holocaust survivors. Right. That's a real thing. That is very true that you survive in your generation because you inherit those same kinds of ways of seeing the world and the same kinds of struggles they carry on. And you have to recognize that in order to come to grips with it. Well, it's a very interesting thing, you know, with Ukraine. 
So you know Rochelle, my wife. Yes. She was actually born in Lviv. Mm -hmm. So, but she never really thought of it. She left when she was six. Okay. But seeing what's going on now, all of a sudden something has emerged. And my mother's side of the family all came from what was called Lvov, which is Lviv as well. Lviv. It was a very large Jewish kind of shtetl back right. in the day. And so there is, all of a sudden things are emerging in both of us that were laying dormant. Mm. Both of us have looked at each other and said, how come we never visited? How come we never went to, to, to go see? Right. And the first thing we want to do when, when Ukraine fights off uh, Putin is to go and visit. Oh, you must. We now, yes. we now feel a kind of connection. Yes. And that's what I wanted to change the subject a little bit and talk to you about this book. Because what you did in this book when I read it, which was months ago, but what you also did is you made very clear to me what was very murky. I didn't know very much about Jordan. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, this also acted for me a bit like armchair travel. Oh, great. In the sense of... I really began to understand, you know, what life in Jordan might be like. Ah, that's that there great. were cities, that there's, you know, there's a vast desert, that, you know, the, the complexity of the topography mm. and the fact that people are dealing with many of the same issues that everybody else is dealing with. Yes. And there is a middle class and there are people ripping off the, the, <laughs> the others. And, you know, I mean, all of that is happening within this very, very, very different world. Yeah, that's right. It's true. I think um, we tend to see these other places, you know, as somehow mysterious and remote from ourselves. And yet they are so interconnected with our lives. And if you go to the Middle East um, or Israel, I mean, it's so Western. You walk around in the streets and there's Starbucks and there's all the same franchises and people are in Internet cafes and um, and then maybe in some ways that's a loss because there is so much more connection. Um, and and it's very much the influence of the West. Right. It's the commodification of things, which is a bit of a loss. Yeah. You are our guide for learning about, the, learning about Jordan, learning about what it was like to be dislocated, learning about what your father was going through, all really, really you know, compelling oh, uh, for great. for the reader. Oh, that's, that's, I'm so thrilled. <laughs> well, you know, I can't say enough about this book. Not oh. only is it a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I know. Those of you who can't see it, you need to run out and buy it. But it's so beautifully designed. Oh, they um, really went the, the extra mile. The jacket image is... The jacket image is an image of a falcon. It's just so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And what I also love, and what you need to talk a little bit about, is you know the other thing you do is you bring the sights and smells of Jordan to us through your description of cooking, oh. which is something <laughs> that I know because I know you that you are so kind of uh, that is the other very rich part of your life yeah yeah it's a really it's a it's a big part of my identity my dad was a really serious chef and so for him his cooking was um his way of carrying the past with him and i think that's a large part of why it stays with me why i've been so fascinated by by food, I feel like identity is so intricately intertwined with food. And if you're an immigrant, again, or a refugee or an exile, that 
you can't bring a lot of stuff with you. Sometimes you can't bring anything, but you can bring your memories. And for so many of us, memory is contained in recipes. Um, the, the, the foods that we create, recreate, um, and that we can offer to others is a beautiful kind of bridge. It's a way of teaching people. My dad used to say, I could talk to you about Middle Eastern history, but I'd rather give you some falafel. Um, you know, and he felt like it brought in all the, um, all that information, all those layers that, um, that you couldn't get otherwise. Oh, here's Gracie. <laughs> Gracie here. is Diana's daughter. And Gracie, I want you to tell Come us here. what pub day is like for the daughter of an amazing novel. <laughs> what do you think about your mom's fencing with the king? I think it's good. That's it? <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's it. Offer us something. I don't know. Oh, she gave up. Oh, darn it. Well, Gracie is Gracie <laughs> Thank is, you, baby. is an amazing kid to behold. Diana, tell me what you would like the reader most to come away with after reading Fencing with the King. Hmm. Well, you know, I I guess I am I'm always concerned with the what I feel is a kind of continual tension between the United States and the Middle East. I feel like it's just continually crackling. It's what Edward Said talked about in Orientalism, the idea that somehow the world is fundamentally divided. And I feel like that has been such an incredible loss to us all. And, and it goes way, way back. But, you know, in my own lifetime, 9-11 and the Gulf Wars and um, all the the ensuing conflict that came out of it are all evidence of that kind of rift and an unnecessary rift. Um, and it's one that you see repeated always between the West and other third world and developing countries. The idea that these lands, these people, these cultures are not really developed, um, that somehow because you're not recognized in a traditionally Western way as a nation, you are not civilized. And so to me, that is a great hope. You know, I mean, I, I can't make any claims for myself or my book, but it's something that I wish always with every creative endeavor is to put a human face on some of these some of these people to to give a voice in some way to this cultural experience the cultural experience of the disenfranchised yeah that's so beautifully said and i and i think that this book will go a long way to achieving that diana i would love if you would read a little something from it would oh, you like to do that sure i i would be happy to um let's see how about I should practice what I'm going to read tonight. Maybe um, for yeah, maybe for a couple of minutes. A couple of minutes. Let me yeah. see. Doesn't here. have to be long. Doesn't have to be long. No, it could be short. Okay. How about is this one page? The opening is always good. Let's do that. All right. So this begins in a little town outside of Amman, Jordan. It's called El Mafrak, and it's set in uh, 1995. 
in Jordan. The scream fell from the sky. Amani watched the falcon pause in midair, fold its wings, and dive. Too fast to measure, the man beside her remarked, extraordinary things. She fanned herself with the program, smearing mink ink in on her hand. So this is a race? He nodded, the 400 meter. Under the open air warm-up tent, trainers milled around, forearms lifted, hooded falcons balanced on leather gloves, showing off. The birds look heavy and monumental like imperial beings. Amani and Gabe were allowed to watch from the warm-up tent, which smelled of hay and bird shit. There were photographers, wealthy tourists in suits, necks slung with camera equipment. Servers with trays walked through a sea of conversation. Amani accepted a glass of something nearly transparent. It smelled grassy and felt light in her mouth. She would have given her last dollar for an ice cube. Somewhere under the risers under the sun, amid a sea of white dish dashes and kefias, sat, sat the king. Don't they believe in water? Her father asked. They? Hafez looked bemused. Someone edged in front of Amani and took a picture of her uncle. She shuffled backward. All day and all night in those airplanes. It's like crossing the Sahara, Gabe said. Diana, that was beautifully done. Thank you so much for oh, that. You're you know, so welcome. One of the things that we who live in South Florida recognize is that there are many stories of hyphenated people living here. Tell me how that makes you feel living here. Uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 real. It's very real. Um, you know, before we moved to Miami, um, we had lived, well, I had lived in several different places as an itinerant academic. I had lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Eugene, and then I met my husband in Portland, and um, not to mention Jordan. And um, when we finally moved from Portland to Miami in 2003, um, immediately I felt at home. I mean, it was uncanny. And I hadn't grown up in Florida. My husband did. He grew up in Orlando. Um, but I felt the sense of belonging. You know, I mean, a huge part of it was coming to Books and Books and walking into the Andalusian courtyard and thinking, oh, yes, I want to live here. Um, so that was right on the right on the money. Um, but it was also talking to the neighbors and explaining who we were. And nobody asked me how to pronounce my last name. And a lot of people knew a lot of people knew Arabic. I met all these Arab Jews and all these Arab Cubans and all these um, mixed up people like myself, which was so gratifying. Um, I just felt like I don't have to explain myself. Yeah, and you know, tonight you're here at Books and Books. We're recording this at Books and Books. It feels so good to be in person, doesn't oh, it? Oh, it's amazing. We're recording this at the bookstore because soon we'll be, after this recording, you'll be giving you'll be giving a talk and a reading, and the great Anna Menendez will be with yes, you. Yes, yes. And she's someone else who shares much of a very similar background, but from a very different place. Yeah. From Cuba, yep. really. Yeah, and she's part Lebanese, you know. So um, we are we are cultural sisters in a lot of a lot of different levels. I feel like we are we're sisters once removed. Speaking of Anna, 
and and other writers. You're always so generous with all the writers that you meet. Who are you reading these days, and what are you excited about? Gosh, well, right now I'm reading Sweet Frances, um, the Irene Nemirovsky tour de force. It's incredible, and it's so prescient. It's amazing how it reverberates with what's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, I was reading Homegoing and um, The Girl with the Louding Voice, um, both exquisite books, just transcendent books, and and great to read them together. That was just an an accident that happened. Is there Um, there an author that you always read, no matter what they publish? Oh, gosh, there are a number of them. Um, I love Anthony Doerr. Uh, His work is always George Saunders. Golly, uh, Michael Andachi, um, oh, Annie Prue. I need something new from her really soon. Ann Patchett, um, oh, God, you know, there's so many. And if you didn't hear your name, it's only because we edited it. We couldn't, she went on and on. I and did, on. I did. <laughs> we had to stop somewhere. Right. <laughs> Diana, it's just such a wonderful time knowing that you are that this book has finally come into the world and you know people all over the country will have a chance to read it and you're going to be speaking to 60 book groups and you're going to be doing some virtual events (laughs) and you're also going to be touring into some of the bookstores so for those who have not read this it's published by ww norton it's fencing with the king and you can find it at your indie bookseller of wherever you are where you can find it online at your indie bookseller. And uh, Diana Abu-Jabber, you're someone that I read whenever you publish a book. Oh, thank you, Mitchell. Thank you. It's great to have you on The Literary Life. Oh, it's great to be here. 